Laura McCowan is the author of the best-selling memoir, We Are the Luckiest, The Surprising Magic of a Sober Life, and the forthcoming Push Off From Here, Nine Essential Truths to Get You Through Sobriety and Everything Else. She has written for the New York Times and has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, The Atlantic, Today Show, and more. In 2020, she founded The Luckiest Club, a global sobriety support community. I have the pleasure of interviewing Laura on today's episode about her new book, Push Off From Here. Hey, it's HPG. This is the podcast, Living My Breastless Life, the show where we hear about my journey to heal while battling cancer, being a wife, a toddler mom. We're going to cover all things real life. We learn what it really means to heal no matter what we go through. In season one, you will hear some of my story along with episodes featuring my occasional co-host, Martha, and some badass guests. There will be humor, life hacks, tips and tricks, and further proof that truth can be stranger than fiction. Why did you write Push Off From Here? Yeah, it's a it's a sort of long story, but I'll I'll make it short. I started writing about sobriety, my own path uh, to getting sober starting in 2013. And by 2016, I was writing about it a lot and also receiving letters from people. I was a couple of years sober then. And one letter that I got was from a woman whose sister was really struggling with alcohol. And she didn't know what to say to her sister as, you know, as is common for people that are watching someone they love struggle because she didn't want to lose her sister. She was worried. She was worried for her sister's kids, all of the usual things. Um, And she was angry and frustrated and all of that. And so she said, what would you, what did you need to hear? What would you want, have wanted to hear when you were struggling still? And so I wrote her this long response and then at the end said, if this is too much information, just give her this list. And I wrote her a list. And in that list was nine things. I'll tell you what they are. So they're not, it doesn't just sound weird. Um, <laughs> it's one, it is not your fault. Two, it is your responsibility. Three, it is unfair that this is your thing. Four, this is your thing. Five, this will never stop being your thing until you face it. Six, you can't do it alone. Seven, only you can do it. Eight, I love you. And nine, I will never stop reminding you of these things. So I sent that off to her. I published it on my blog. And then those those points just kind of stuck with me. And I started, I shared them occasionally on social media. And then when I wrote my first book, We Are the Luckiest, I, I knew that I wanted those nine things to be the epigraph of the book. And so they were included there. And when We Are the Luckiest came out, a lot of people responded to those nine things, um, sometimes even more so than the book. Like I had people want to interview me for podcasts about the nine things. And and it was funny because they were just the epigraph. It was like, you aren't even into the book yet when you're reading that. So they, they were sticky. And then in 2020, when the pandemic hit, I founded The Luckiest Club, which is a sobriety support community. And when I was coming up with the 
concept for TLC and what I wanted it to be, I knew that I wanted those nine things to be part of the, the whole deal, the culture. And so they are. We read them at the end of every meeting. Uh, as you know, mm-hmm. we uh, people have, have developed shorthand for them. So people will say, you know, number eight. Um, to let people know that they're loved after a hard share or if they're going through something difficult, they'll just type in number eight in the chat or in the community. And I should say, when I founded TLC, I changed the last two to, because they were, I love you and I will never stop reminding you these things to a more collective, you are loved and we will never stop reminding you of these things. And they've very much become a, a part of the culture of that community and also... I got a lot of questions about them. What what does it actually mean, you know, to say like you get the points, they're intuitive enough, but when you really look at each one, you know, it's hard to explain what it means to take responsibility and why it's helpful to hear that it's not fair that this is your thing. Why is that? Like we kind of know that it's helpful to hear it, but what what? Do we expect things to be fair? Why is that helpful? Um and so on and so forth. And so there was this call for a deeper understanding. And I realized that I didn't even really know exactly how to explain them beyond just the, the list itself. And so that's how Push Off From Here was born. It was not the book I expected to write um, as my next book, but it was the book that emerged as sort of needing to be written. And that's what the book is. It's an exploration of those nine things. Push Off From Here is an amazing book. I loved it. Thank you. I've read it twice. Wow. You're <laughs> <Yeah>. fast. <laughs> you got it like a week ago. Or I, two. Know. I know. Oh. I just really, really loved it. And I love the nine things. And I have a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> and have had a lot of things. And they're a really good framework for folks to use, not just folks who struggle with substance use or cancer in my case, but just all kinds of things. I think everybody has a thing. Totally. We all have many things. You're not the only one. (laughs) Yeah, I've got got several. So I think that, I just think the book is a wonderful exploration of the things and like what they mean and how they're applicable to so many different experiences right that we have challenges we face anything that sort of pushes up against our edge of what we think we can handle what we're prepared to handle what we want yeah all of that mm-hmm. yeah and I like I like the in we are the luckiest um, when I read that I actually listened to it while I was um, rage cleaning my closet if I'm being honest <laughs> and it. when you talk about push off from here I actually like adapted that in my leadership with my team of social workers like awesome. when we would have really hard things happen with our clients I would say okay you know let's just push off from here because mm. it's a gentle it's a gentle start over or reframe yeah like, okay if this happened this is this is hard we just experienced a loss of a client or this you know tragedy happened with the folks that we work with so let's process it and just try to push off from here. So yeah, thank you. I love that you use that <laughs> for that reason. And thank you for doing the work you do. I have my best friend's a social worker is I have a lot of respect for that. I appreciate that. So we talk about how 
you know, everybody has a, a thing. And I think, just according to me, I think that everyone, not just the luckiest, right? But I do think that everyone should be required to face their thing. Mm-hmm. But I don't make the rules. I can right. just only worry about my... <laughs> I can only just focus on my things. And I, I guess, like, you know, what are some of the... What are some of the outcomes if people don't face their thing? Right. I know for me, had I not faced my things, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. Yeah. But, you know, that's a pretty extreme consequence, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, if we don't face our things, what are some things, like, in your thoughts that, that we face? There's things that we kind of know we might face. Let's just take drinking as an example. If you're pretty far down the path of addiction, or you don't even need to be that far. You have a pretty good sense of, well, I'll use myself as as an example so we can get really specific. Like I knew that by not drinking, I was, there were going to be some things that would come from that. Some good things. I would not have hangovers anymore. I would not be painfully slogging through my days. I would not, you know, potentially be fired from work as I had many times. My relationships would probably be better. I I would feel better physically and emotionally. Um, I joke in the book that I'd have fewer Amazon boxes show up up at my door that I didn't remember ordering. We kind of, we know that those things will get better, but there's so much that we don't know that we're going to get. We don't, we A, don't know the losses that we will incur because they're kind of invisible in a way. Um, things like our potential. We don't know what's on the other side of facing this thing, how we will grow going through it, and also what will be uncovered when we're not facing that. And, you know, addiction especially takes up so much emotional, spiritual, mental, physical energy and you don't know what's going to happen when that energy isn't being sucked up by an addiction. So there's all this unknown potential that we we can't possibly know what it's going to be like to lose that until we walk into it and see. So that's the big one to me. And potential sounds like it can be this kind of gross weaponized word in the self-help industry. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean it that way. I mean it in like just a true spiritual sense, the the gift of learning who you really are and becoming who you actually are, which is not even an outward manifestation of something. Like, it doesn't mean that you have this beautiful outward facing life, you know, or you achieve certain things that society cares about. Sometimes it means that. I always wanted to be an author, but and I and I had all these ideas of what being an author meant on the outside and how like glamorous or cool I thought that might be, but I also had an inside job of what I the, like a soul desire, a spiritual desire to be an to to write, to practice writing, to be immersed in that as an artist and a craft and I wouldn't have there is no way I could have become an author were I not to get sober. So that's what I mean by not knowing your potential. You don't know the potential of your life. And that extends outward to others in such a profound way. Yeah. Right? That extends out, it, for example, in when you when people get sober, using this as an example again, we're often like breaking these really entrenched patterns within families of just pain and abuse and 
chaos and trauma. To break that pattern, uh, you, you can't put a price on that. Right. Those are the prices that we pay when we don't face our thing. And it it doesn't always have to be quite that heavy, but it kind of is. Like, there are things for a reason. I'm not, this isn't like, oh, you could, you know, lose those last 10 pounds or you could. Right. This isn't like you could be 10% more productive in your days and um, have a, you know, better looking living room. This isn't small stuff. This is the big, deep, deep, profound heroine's journey, hero's journey type of stuff. Though That's what our things are asking us to face. And so I don't know that there is a bigger price, I mean, uh, to pay than that. I'm with you. I, I, I don't know if I would say everybody should face their things. I, I mean, I probably do think that, but... I think um, it's a, it's a they're misunderstood. Our things are misunderstood. Pain is misunderstood. And mm-hmm. what I know is that I, this unused potential that we have that I'm talking about is not like a benign thing. What grows in its place is really dark and just and destructive and ruinous. Yeah. So that's the cost of not facing our things is we don't get the opportunity to per, to repair that and to provide light instead of darkness in our lives Mm -hmm. and lives of others. I have a phrase called no new destruction. Like Mm -hmm. we get to stop causing destruction when we heal. And like, what could be more important than that? Right. Even in the confines of our own minds, even if we're just looking at the individual. I love how you frame the things in the book as an invitation. Mm -hmm. It's an invitation. And I think that is such a gentle way to look at the thing. Like, yeah, it's also annoying. (laughs) I'm sure to people, (laughs) I would find it annoying, but it is, it's, it's true. (laughs) Yeah. I know at the book you say like, and I'm paraphrasing, like taking responsibility Mm. is like annoying and rude. Yeah. It's so rude. And (laughs) like, it never stops coming the opportunities to see your part in things. But it's also like, there's no freedom without it. Right. Unfortunately. I think on, like, anyone anyone on a healing journey, or I'll just speak to my own, what people say, what's the hardest part? I think that for me, I had to see, like, where I am the problem. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. taking responsibility. And when you say, speaking of responsibility, when you say in the book, like asking for help is the most responsible thing that you could do. I shared that with my therapist yesterday. I have it on a post-it note. I'm like, <laughs> that just, that just hit. That, oh, that was really profound. Yeah, we don't think of it that way. We think of responsibility as just personal responsibility. It's We think of it as strength, you know, mm-hmm. like the, the bootstraps kind of strength and that's not really usually it. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes when people say like, you're the strongest person I know, which I have heard a mm-hmm. whole lot in the past couple of years, mm-hmm. sometimes that gets exhausting. And I love that like the asking for help is the most responsible thing you can do because how I faced the things is by asking for help. Is that hard? Yes, 
Like in the book, you talk about, you know, self, hyper self-independence and self-reliance and, you know, all these things that our culture teaches us to do. And it is so hard to ask for help. It's the hardest. It's the hardest for most people. Let's take a little break and get right back to the show. Feel free to let us know what topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes. Get in touch by heading over to According to HPG on Instagram and be sure to tell your friends about the show. There was a time when I thought I could record, edit, and publish everything myself. Seeing as this left me very little time for anything else, I started to lose the standard of quality I was used to. Then I found Jay. In less than a day, the show went from so-so to amazing. Don't sacrifice quality for mediocrity. Check out the podcast mechanic and take your sound to the next level. Connect with Jay today at the podcast mechanic on Instagram. Let him know HPG sent you. And now back to the show. My mom always taught me like when they made a woman, they should have made her out of steel. It's interesting what we carry with us, like the don't ask for help. We just have to bootstrap. We're made of steel. Mm-hmm. No, and indeed I'm not. Um <laughs> No. No. And you know, we only find that out when we are faced with something that pushes us up against the wall because it, I I mean I, I don't know about you, but I didn't I only asked for help when it was the last Thing available to me and where the consequences for not asking were so steep that I wasn't willing to face them. And I think like anything, practice. When you yeah. practice, you know, asking for what you need, asking for help, it gets easier. It does. And more comfortable. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the most, out of the nine things, what was the most difficult or challenging yeah. thing for you? It was that one. It is still that one. This, you can't do it alone. Number six, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's you can't do it alone because I still, that's my default. I want to. I'm embarrassed, ashamed of, disgusted by the idea of being needy. You know, I have just like this strong reaction to it. It's gotten a lot better over time. I was even just last night so proud of myself because I have a big week coming up with the book coming out and um, my fiance won't be in town, um, which just means like more house stuff, like the day-to-day stuff is left to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I will also have my daughter, which means a lot of running around, which is normal, but like he picks up a little bit of that. And that on top of a, a book launch week, I was like, okay, I, where could I ask for some help now so that I like clear, like I, while he's in town so I can clear, like I can just have a little bit of energy back. And I would have never done that before. And last night I just said, 
I need, can you pick her up tonight from her dad's? And he's like, of course, sure. But even just that little ask was like, I would have never done that before. I would have done the pickup. I would have felt bad for asking. I would have then been overtired and kind of resentful, but never say anything because it's not his responsibility. It's not his daughter. You know, all that stuff adds up. Yeah, it really, really does. And like the resent, the resentful part of like, you don't ask for help, you don't ask for what you need, then you become resentful. It's like a tumbleweed of more things. Yeah, well, and that's the other thing you learn in recovery is like, you can't afford to be resentful. You just can't afford it. It's the, the cost is too high. And what I mean by that is you may end up, you know, we end up drinking or we end up taking, you know, just acting in ways that we're not proud of or exhausted or burned out. You know, we, we, our mental health goes in the shitter. Right. So you do that enough times and you realize the problem is me. I'm the one who's unwilling to ask. Um, and why do I have this wildly overgrown sense of like what it means to, why, why do I think it's the ultimate to do everything on your own? Because that's a lie, by the way. Mm-hmm. We just, we don't. And you know, it's, I think one helpful way to look at it is like, I love when people ask me to show up for them. My daughter, my partner, my friends. I love it when I can and I'm able. So give people that opportunity to show up for you. Yeah. It's like ask and let them decide, like using boundaries or or what have you. And if they can, that's great. If not, that's okay. Then you've asked, Mm -hmm. you've had an exchange of dialogue and Mm -hmm. then it cuts out on the resentfulness and the bitterness. And it's just, it's just better. It also creates a a better relationship. This was the other piece that I learned was like, when you're not asking for things that you need when you need them, you're you're being dishonest, Mm -hmm. right? And that you're not giving the other person a chance to like know how you really feel, know what you really need, know what you really think. And so your intimacy is compromised. And I don't mean, you know, I mean intimacy and just like the basic sense of how you can be close with anyone. And honesty is always at the center of that. So I think looking at it as a form of dishonesty was also, has been very helpful to me. I loved and we are the luckiest when you were so raw about the truth. And I noticed there's an honesty theme throughout Push Off from here. And I love that. That just really speaks when you know, like like when you're sober, you are hearing and speaking the truth. Like that mm-hmm. is in it of itself a form of sobriety. Like take the substance away, right? Take the booze out of it. And being honest with yourself is being sober. That's like, right. Cha-ching, cha-ching. Like, <laughs> as I think I've heard you say before, that's the shit that makes the sunrise. Have I said that? I think I've read it somewhere. Maybe you didn't. I don't so That is delivered best with a Southern accent. Well, yep. there you go. There you go. I mean, it sounds great. If I said it, great. Um, that's awesome. That is the, the sort of bottom line of sobriety for everybody. Whatever your sobriety is, is, is are you able to tell the truth to yourself and to other people? And if you're not, you know, you just have some practicing to do. You've got some work to do. It's okay. There's no like morality around it. It's just, what are you afraid of? What are you ashamed of? What's going on? Yeah. 
I really love that theme throughout the book about honesty and, you know, which ties into integrity to our insides, match our outsides. And it's just such a, each chapter goes into such detail about the things, but then you provide resources for how to work on the thing. Mm-hmm. So it's like my my thoughts are like it's like a memoir paired with a resource book paired with like the end of all these places you can go to get support and like things books to read and podcasts and you know all these places for people to go who can say like I can't I can't do this alone so I can go here or I can look up on the internet and kind of lurk a little bit and mm-hmm. put my put my toe in the water you know it very similar to what I did like when I read your book I looked you up we are the luckiest and I was like hmm you know <laughs> yeah but it gives good. people a guide a lot of people doesn't tell you what to do but it helps well it kind of does but like helps you explore what feels right for you and it plants the seed and then it gives you somewhere to go. Yeah, I wanted it to be useful. I ask a lot of questions in it, actually. There's just a lot of questions for people to answer themselves at the, during, in through, woven through the chapters at the end of the chapters because I don't, I know what's true, what what's true for me and did a lot of research to find out what's true, uh, the truth as we know it based on, you know, clinicians and experts, but you, everybody's a little different, you know? And I, and giving people the truth, the truth isn't even helpful. You know, giving people their answers, I should say, isn't helpful because I don't have them. So in the conclusion of the book, probably my favorite part, to be honest, was when you write about you be the one. And I would love to hear you talk about that a little bit more. Sure. It's my favorite part too. So back years ago now, I went to a writing retreat hosted by Danny Shapiro. This was before any books came out. And I remembered her telling this story about her Aunt Shirley. And it was this very anecdotal story, but I just remembered it, uh, where her Aunt Shirley would say to her, you be the one. You be the one to make that call. You be the one to forgive your family. You be the one. When her Aunt Shirley was like her beloved, her sort of mentor and guide and all those things. And she would, when they would have conversations and or Danny would bring to her something that was, she was struggling with or someone she was struggling with, she would often say, you be the one. You know, you be the one to go first. Um, whatever the situation called for. And I remembered her telling that story. And over the years, it kind of stuck with me. And then I was, as I was trying to figure out how to finish this book, I had this, I had written at the beginning of writing the the book, I had written on a post-it note, you be the one. And I didn't really know why I'd written it down, but I had it, you know, on my desk, taped to my computer monitor while I was writing. And as I was finishing the book, I, I kept thinking, oh, like I kept looking at that and I thought, of course, that's it. That's what I, that's the end of the book. And what it means is in this context is, you know, you be the one to go first. Facing the thing, especially as it relates to addiction, you're often the first one in your family to go f- to do this. You're the first one in your group of friends to do this. You maybe were the first person to face cancer in your circle. Um, and it, that's unfair and it's hard and it's 
infuriating and all of those things. And yet you be the one, you be the one to forgive that person that doesn't need for, that doesn't deserve forgiving in your mind, but you want to be free. You be the person to be brave. You be the, the first person to say you're sorry, whatever it is you be the one. And getting sober required for me to be the one to go first in so many different ways. And it still requires that of me. And I, I was so angry about that. And I was then all uh, sad about that, all of those things. And yet, eventually, I did keep choosing to be the one. And I still, you know, choose to be the one. And that's what I wanted to leave people with. You be the one to push off from here. Despite everything else I've said, you be the one. So it was a little bit of a call to arms, a little bit of a like tough love, a little bit of just like you can be the one, you can do this. So that's what it's about. I love it. I, when I finished the book the first time, I was sitting downstairs with my wife and like tears came to my eyes and I'm not a teary kind of gal, just not. And I was like, wow. It was just, it was just the perfect conclusion. And it like, you'd be the one to push off from here. My daughter will be three in May. Oh. And I'm thinking about having you be the one, like, in her room somehow, you know? I love that. I hope you do it, and I hope you send it to me. <laughs> I'm gonna. I think it's just, yeah, I'm, a, I'm almost 43 and having an almost three-year-old. It's like, I've got to mold this human. Mm-hmm. And I think that my healing journey will be so key in helping mold a human. Absolutely. So. I'm kind of jealous in a way that you're at that stage. Yeah, I'm very, very, very thankful that she is too, and I'm able to be more present and, you know, think about things like you be the one, you, know, you be the house where the truth is told. Mm-hmm. Like, and and start start young with the principles that I think are important. And probably the stuff I didn't have. Yep. That's probably the the truth. (laughs) But you get to be the one. You get to go first. That's right. right. I'm thank you for uh, saying that and acknowledging it. I loved, I love that part of the book too. So what's next for you, Laura? Well, um, uh, after this book, I'll be doing a bunch of traveling around to talk about it. Um, But I'm writing another book. I have, um, when I sold this book, I sold two books. So there's already another book in the works. Uh, about love addiction, codependency, all the relationship stuff that I had to face when I got sober, which was like a second sobriety for me. It was excruciating and painful and helpful and all of that. Um, And I've learned it's a whole other thing that I I didn't kind of knew was there, didn't really know the level to which it was there. And it's something that so many people face when they get sober. I hear about um, people with like love addiction and relationships. And um, I, of course, have experienced my own issues with relationships, but I think that's going to be so valuable for so many people. Just like push off from here. I hope so. Yeah, it'll be back to just straight memoir. Um, We'll see what happens as I write it. It sounds sounds scary right now, which is probably a good thing. Yeah. (laughs) I often joke when people say like, do one thing. Every day that scares you, I just joke. I get out of bed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Done. Check. 
Check that one off for the day. <laughs> Where can folks find your book? You can pre-order it now literally anywhere. It will physically be in bookstores and Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the usual suspects. Well, thank you so much for being on the show thank today. You. Thank it was you. It so wonderful to see you and good luck this week. I hope you have a wonderful afternoon. You too. Talk soon. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living My Breastless Life. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please leave a review, download, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Go get your mammograms.